0: If you will join me in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. The title of our sermon this morning is Faithful in Christ Jesus. And our key words for our worshipers and training are saints, faithful, and Christian. Ephesians 1 verses 1 and 2 we will be looking at this morning. Now, this past week, I have been in Colorado at the Reformed Baptist Network's Rocky Mountain Missions Conference. And over three days, we were able to hear what God is doing in 17 different nations around the world through local churches and missionaries. And of all the conferences and meetings I have attended in a decade of ministry, this was by far one of the most exciting and encouraging weeks that I've had, because we got to hear directly from pastors and missionaries who are faithfully plodding along in some very difficult work throughout the world, and they are seeing some wonderful fruit from their labors. Uh, Some of the work is in some really difficult places to live let alone to minister and seek to proclaim the gospel and build a church. Places like the jungle and muddy riverbeds of Papua, Indonesia. Others are in dangerous places where Christianity is illegal and their being there to proclaim the gospel and to evangelize is a very dangerous venture for the entire family. Places like the Far East and the Middle East. There are others who are ministering right here in the United States in places like West Atlanta or one church that has a thriving ministry among the Native Americans. And report after report, I just sat and I listened and was in awe because all I could think of was how these are men. These are churches who support these men who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Some of these missionaries I think of as the kind of people the writer to the Hebrews said are men of whom the world is not worthy. We heard of families that were put in prison for evangelizing, others who were having to take extreme security measures under the threat of extreme persecution. There are terrorist factions seeking to destroy any Western influence and particularly anyone who promotes or professes faith in Jesus Christ. It is remarkable what the Lord is doing around the world to promote the gospel and to get glory for himself. I am very encouraged, brothers and sisters, by God's people and all of their efforts to make the nations glad in Christ. And truly, there's no reason whatsoever to doubt the promise of God's word when he says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover The seas. But if you're like me, You'd hear some of the things I've heard this past week, and you would be marveling at the faith of some of God's people, longing to have faith like theirs, amazed at their perseverance and their strength through many dangers, toils, and snares, wondering if you'll ever be giving more of yourself to the work of the kingdom around the world in the way that these men and women have. And given some political and cultural climates around the world, it's not difficult for us to look at what many people are doing for the kingdom of God. And if they just gave up and walked away from it, we would understand, we wouldn't blame them, we would get it. But they don't, they stay and they persevere and they keep pressing on because their faith in Christ has given them the ability to face the immensity of their challenges, to continue to serve with persistence and courage and absolute joy. But you know what? These aren't super-Christians. These aren't bulletproof believers who labor without discouragements and setbacks and frustrations and temptations and sins of their very own. They are simply laboring under the conviction of Jim Elliot, who said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Is that you? You may not be leading a secret house church in China or seeking to bring the gospel to Muslims in Iran, but you have co-workers, you have neighbors, you have family members and friends who reject the gospel and who reject the God of the Bible. What does your life look like to them? Are you faithful in Christ Jesus? This morning, we begin our verse-by-verse journey through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And it is, in essence, Paul's summary of the gospel reflecting on the work of the triune God in the redemption of his people and the formation of his church, individually, corporately, and historically. One writer concluded that Ephesians is the distilled essence of the Christian religion, the most authoritative and most consummate compendium of our holy Christian faith. And I think that is quite a statement, but I don't think it's an exaggeration. When placed alongside the book of Romans, these two letters together give us a full picture of the majesty and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, both in individual applications in our lives as God's people and in the cosmic implications that stretch far and wide wherever the name of Christ is named and the Holy Spirit is at work. So we're going to begin this morning by looking at the first two verses of this great letter. And I trust that the Lord will give us much insight. He will give us much spiritual growth in the months ahead as we look to understand Ephesians at a much more significant level than hopefully any of us have before. Now if you're using the Blue ESV Bible, your text this morning can be found on page 976. We begin by reading Ephesians chapter 1, verses one 1- And two, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we get into the details of these two verses, I want us to consider the context of Paul's writing. I think it's important for us to know just how applicable this letter is to us today. Oftentimes we get into texts in the Bible and we will say, yes, that may be true, but it was for the people the writer writer was writing to initially. It's for that audience and not for us. And sometimes that is true of the scriptures. However, Ephesians is very different than that. Ephesians is very much for us in every way. While it's likely that all of our English versions uh, that we have before us in the book of Ephesians say something in verse 1 like, to the saints who are in Ephesus, some of the ancient manuscripts don't have those words in Ephesus. Some manuscripts have it, some don't. But what scholars mostly agree on is that the letter was written by the Apostle Paul as a kind of circular letter that was to be read among various churches, to be read out loud... As they receive it so what they did was was what Paul did as he wrote it he sort of left an empty space where the the one who was reading the letter could fill in the name of the church when it got to that place so it's likely that it said something like to the saints who are in blank and the faithful in Christ Jesus so while the letter certainly did go to Ephesus itself it also went to many other churches But the original recipients of it were probably the Ephesians. It's also interesting to note that unlike most of Paul's other writings, there really aren't any kind of personal notes in Ephesians. Like, please be sure to greet the brothers, Larry, Curly, and Moe. You see, that is in most of his other letters. But we don't see that in Ephesians. Because it was intended to be read in many different locations. So that being said, it is instructive for us to consider at least the church at Ephesus and the city they were in, because it's very helpful for us as Christians in our culture to understand their culture, where Christians in the first century lived. Luke records in Acts chapter 19 that Ephesus was a great and prosperous city, but it was a city that was completely pagan in every way. The people there worshipped the goddess Diana and their frequent cry was great is Diana of the Ephesians. In addition to goddess worship there was a lot of sorcery, there was a lot of magic going on. The people were full of arrogance and pride. There were cults of all sorts and kinds. Everywhere you look you would find things and people and ideas that were opposed to God. And when Paul first visited the city, all he found was a group of 12 men who were disciples of John the Baptist, but even they were uncertain in their minds as to what was true. It probably seemed, in some ways, like a very helpless situation. And as I've thought this, this past week about some of the places in the world where some very faithful missionaries served, it's easy to sit back and to think, wow, the challenges seem too great they seem too insurmountable how will anything be accomplished there how can any church get planted and grow and flourish in that place but you know as well as i do that the gospel is not human teaching the gospel is the power of god unto salvation to everyone who believes And when the gospel comes into a city, and when the gospel is proclaimed faithfully and joyfully and powerfully as it was with the Apostle Paul, the people are filled with the Holy Spirit, and amazing things can happen that are impossible. Yet with God, all things are possible. The gospel can and did flourish in the city of Ephesus. And in the same way, the gospel can flourish in Beijing and Jalalabad and Lagos and Kabul and Rincon and Savannah and Atlanta and Los Angeles. But here's the question I want us to think about because it gets at why Paul introduces our letter the way he does. And it gets at one of the major themes of Ephesians right out of the gate. There really are about three main themes in the letter, but one of the major emphases is what it is to be a Christian. When we say we are Christians, what do we mean? What does that look like? It seems to me that the primary need of the Christian church in any culture is really to recognize and understand what it means to be a Christian. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once asked, how was it that the early Christians, who were but a handful of people, had such a profound impact on the pagan world in which they lived? It was because they were what they were. It was not their organization. It was the quality of their life. It was the power they possessed because they were truly Christian. This is how Christianity conquered the ancient world and I am more and more convinced that it is the only way in which Christianity can truly influence the modern world. And I think the good doctor was right. And I believe that wherever we see Christianity present in some form and yet largely irrelevant and non-influential in the world, we will find a people who are very much unlike the description of the Christians we find in the New Testament. Brothers and sisters, if we are going to win the world for Jesus Christ, then we must begin by looking at our own lives to discover how closely we conform to the pattern and description of what a Christian is in the Bible. So I want to spend the remainder of our time this morning thinking about that question What is it to be a Christian? And we'll look at it under three headings from our text. The first thing I want us to see in verse 1 is that to be a Christian is to be called by the will of God. Now Paul begins this letter by identifying himself as a writer and he establishes his credentials as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now remember, Paul wasn't a man who was seeking to find ways he could serve the Lord Jesus Christ because he was a faithful follower of him. No, Paul was mo- known among the Jews as Saul. He was a very devout Pharisee who was primarily responsible for the eradication of the gospel and the complete destruction of Christianity, not its promotion. He was a persecutor of the church. He killed Christians who, who preached the gospel, claiming them to be blasphemers and heretics. But on a journey to Damascus, where he was planning on finding followers of the way, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem, he was struck by a very bright light from heaven that shone around him. And he fell to the ground, and he had a direct encounter with the resurrected, living, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. And instantly, Paul became a follower of Christ. Instantly, Paul went from being a persecutor of God's people to being one who would repeatedly be persecuted. I'm sure most of us are familiar with Paul's story, but I am always struck by how clear God's sovereignty is in his conversion. I mean, he he couldn't have been any further from believing the gospel, he couldn't have been any less likely as a candidate for one who would believe. He was killing Christians. But the Lord stopped him in his tracks and Acts chapter 9 says, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And then it goes on to say, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God. So Paul had no question in his mind whatsoever about whether or not he became who he was by the will of God. Paul's apostleship is by the will of God, which means he is a messenger who was fully authorized and sent by Jesus Christ. And as as an apostle, he has all the authority to proclaim the gospel in both oral and written form, as well as to establish and build up the churches of Christ. But it goes further than his apostleship, doesn't it? There was no mistaking it. Paul was a Christian. He was a follower of Jesus Christ. He was an apostle because of the will of God. Paul's calling to be an apostle to the Gentiles fits perfectly with God's gracious divine plan. He didn't appoint himself to the position. God chose him for the position. Remember back in Galatians 1... Paul introduced that letter by saying, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He said it there too. But this is more than his apostleship. It specifically deals with an even greater aspect of God's saving plan. Those words, by the will of God, they have overtones of God's unmerited free grace and they really lay the emphasis on the fact that there was no merit on Paul's part for him to become a Christian in general or an apostle specifically and I think God did what he did with Paul and allowed him to be who he was so that we would have such a vivid example of what happens when God makes someone a new creation in Jesus Christ Not everyone's story is this dramatic, and not everyone has a moment in time that they can recall or describe when everything sort of instantly changes. That happens, but we can't all describe when that was. Sometimes we go through a process whereby the Lord is bringing us to a place where we begin to understand and see our hearts and our need for redemption, and we're slowly brought to a place of repentance. But others do have this this sort of immediate moment. There's something that happens. There's a place and a time where the Lord does something with them. When he like what he did with Paul, and he knocks them to the ground and brings them to new life in Jesus Christ. And some of you have that story yourselves. And one of the themes of the first chapter, especially in the book of Ephesians, is God's work in election. God's saving grace that changes a person, bringing them into a saving relationship with Christ as adopted members of the family of God. And something I hope all of us will be thinking about is our very own conversion. If it's true that to be a Christian is to be called by the will of God, we need to know that we have, in fact, been called by the will of God. If we think we are Christians by our own will or by something we have done, we have a false notion of how God works and we have a rather inflated view of ourselves and our abilities and our worthiness. If you're a Christian, it's not because you were out in the world doing the things you wanted to do, doing everything for yourself, and just decided on your own, well, I guess it's time to believe in Jesus now. You weren't doing everything for yourself one minute and then just decided, okay, I'm getting bored with living for myself and being selfish and self-serving and self-promoting. I'm going to live for Jesus now. No, it was by the will of God that you were brought to the end of yourself. It was by the will of God that you saw your sinfulness and you saw your need for redemption. It was by the will of God that you heard the gospel and believed the gospel and repented of your sin and were made a new creation in Jesus Christ. And Paul will spend a lot of time unpacking that for us in this first chapter and even into the second, but he says it right here in the first verse. You and I, if we are Christians, it is by the will of God. We didn't deserve it. We didn't want it. But because he loved us while we were yet his enemies, he saved us. When we were his enemies, he sent his son Jesus Christ to die that we might live. Friends, some of you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, and you are continually seeking to live for yourself, doing your own things in your own way. This morning, I want you to know there's a reason you are here. You're not here by accident this morning because the Lord doesn't make mistakes. You are here this morning to hear the gospel. And you are here this morning so you can hear me tell you that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no way of salvation unless you believe in him. Repent and believe and Jesus will not cast you away because if he brought you to a place where you repent and believe, it is by the will of God and he loves you and takes care of you when you are his sheep and he is your shepherd. And perhaps some of you who are Christians are feeling maybe rather hopeless about your spouse or a child or a parent or a friend or a coworker. Some of you might be thinking about all the family that's coming in this week and they'll be in your home or you're going to see them and you're going to be with them. And will they ever turn to Christ? Will they ever know the sweetness of life in Jesus Christ? Will they ever know eternal life? And maybe you assume it's their intellectualism or their false religion or their training or their environment that keeps them from Christ. And so there's no real hope for them to be converted. There's no real hope in seeing them become new creations. But let's not forget, the Lord saved you. And let me tell you, you were a no-good person. The Lord saved the apostle Paul, and he was a no-good person. The Lord saved me, and I certainly was a no-good person. The gospel is the power of God and it has accomplished mighty things throughout history and it is the same gospel and does the same exact thing today. It can take hold of the most hopeless individual and turn them into Christians. That is the primary function of the gospel. It is the very thing God gave us to proclaim and called us to proclaim far and wide for his glory. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep encouraging. Keep pointing to them, them to the cross. Keep trusting in the Lord to do what he will do according to his will for his glory. It's a freeing thing to know that we are what we are in Christ by the will of God, because I assure you, if your salvation was up to you, there's no way you'd be sitting here right now. Well, Paul goes on to show us the second thing for us to see this morning, that to be a Christian is to be a saint who is faithful in Christ Jesus. You see in the second part of verse 1, Paul says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Did you know that you're a saint? If you are a Christian, one of the things it means to be a Christian is that you are a saint. Did you know that? Unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church have identified only certain people as saints based on their virtuous life or their deeds when they lived and they die, and eventually they determined they were saints. But the Bible doesn't say anything like that. In fact, the Bible quite clearly and repeatedly says that every Christian is a saint. Everyone who is in Christ is a saint. So don't say something like, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm no saint. Well, yes, you are. John Calvin wrote, No man is a believer who is not also a saint. And on the other hand, no man is a saint who is not a believer. You are as much of a saint as my friend Trevor, who labors in the jungles of Indonesia, eating grub worms and tree bark and living in a tree house. And Mark Hatfield in Beijing, China. And a guy who goes by the initials DM, who travels in some of the most dangerous places throughout the world to encourage pastors in their work. And RS, who is in the Middle East working as a teacher looking for opportunities to evangelize the Muslims. You're as much of a saint as the Apostle Paul and Peter and James and John. All of us, every last one of us is a sinner. And as sinners, we stand on level ground at the cross looking to Christ together as saints. And that should challenge all of us a little bit because God doesn't tell us to be a saint. He doesn't say we should strive to live saintly lives. He says if you are in Christ, you are a saint. That means that we are people who are set apart in this world. That's the primary meaning of of the word. And so we can say the church is not primarily an institution, but a gathering of his saints. And when we gather as saints on the earth, we gather together with all the saints of the earth and all the saints who are in heaven and all the cherubim and all the seraphim to worship the risen King Jesus Christ on his throne. And God has always set his people apart from the very beginning We have always been a people as a part of a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people whose efforts should all be expended to the glory of God. So we have to ask ourselves, are we going about our lives as God's people, as those who know we are saints? Do we know and do we live every day of life knowing and believing that the Lord has set us apart in this world that we lived in, and that he has called us to live and work in. That means, at the very least, least, that our lives should have something very different about them than the rest of the world, right? We are men and women like other men and women, and yet we are very different. This is a primary basic truth of the Christian life. We are not like anyone else. We are are unique because we were made to be new creations. Not cleaned up versions of our old self. Not a little bit better upgrade. No, we are an entirely new creation. And so it's important for us to ask ourselves as individuals, as families, and as a church, are we essentially different from the world? And if we are, how so? And if we're not, why not? Because the saints of God have profoundly and uniquely different lives because we've been cleansed inwardly. A saint is someone who has been cleansed in many ways. Cleansed from the guilt of sin, cleansed from that which keeps us from standing in the presence of God. We have been cleansed from the pollution of sin. We are no longer obligated to follow after and find delight in those things which once polluted our minds and hearts and actions and everything else. Many of you have experienced this. You, you, ha- you have things or you see things that you, you have, w- at one time, you would have easily said or done yourself. But now, you see it or you hear it and it shocks your system and it's surprising to your ears and your eyes because you see it for what it is for the first time. And that that cleansing has worked. It has set you apart as holy unto the Lord. So we look and we see everything around us differently because we're new creations. Now Paul also says that the saints are faithful in Christ Jesus. The word faithful simply means that we exercise our faith. It's actively believing in and trusting in God. So so under the shadow of pagan temples and the goddess Diana, the Christians in Ephesus were living as those who were set apart believing in God, trusting God, and all that he promises to his children. And they did all of that in Christ Jesus. As Christians, we we don't simply believe in Christ, but in a very real way, we are in Christ. Just as before we were saints, we were all in Adam when we belong to Christ, we are all in Christ. We belong to him. He is part of us. We are part of him. We are joined to him. We were crucified with Christ. We died with Christ. We were buried with Christ. We will be resurrected with Christ. And now we see as saints, we are called to be faithful in Christ. And to be a Christian means not only that we are, we are believers outside of him, we are believers because we are truly in him. So right here at the beginning of this letter, Paul describes Christians as a people who are marked out by God to be his holy people because of our believing response to the gospel, which is ultimately because of God's gracious initiative. It is by the will of God in Christ Jesus. And he calls us saints, and he calls us to be faithful in him. Well, the last thing we'll look at this morning is in verse 2, and that is to be a Christian is to have grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We see in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul offers a blessing to his readers. But it is a blessing that is simply a statement of what is already ours if we are in Christ Jesus. This is the basic introductory statement that Paul uses in most of his letters, but here in Ephesians, specifically, this blessing that he offers to the people is from the twin source of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's thoughts are completely God-centered, and we'll see that all throughout the letter as he's making constant reference to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit and, and to the specific work that each of them does. And this is really Paul's rejoicing in what he has already identified. You are saints. You are faithful. You are in Christ Jesus. Rejoice. He's celebrating through his greeting and through his blessing of how the gospel works. Grace comes first. And as it fills our lives through the Holy Spirit, it brings shalom. It brings peace, it brings reconciliation, it brings wholeness where there once was confusion and angst and disarray and disunity and brokenness. To be a Christian is to have grace and peace and all who have grace and peace are in Christ and all who want grace and peace in their lives can find it in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the one who was sent to redeem mankind has come down from heaven to earth and indeed he descended even lower into the ground. He wasn't ashamed to put on the likeness of sinful men. He bore our punishment on the cross, his blood was shed and we are reconciled and have peace with God through him. And as if that wasn't enough, having taken our nature upon himself, he then gives us his nature. We aren't just forgiven. We are made new and become children of God. John Calvin once said, the son of God became the son of man, that the sons of men might become the sons of God. And so we not only have peace with God and with others when we are in Jesus Christ, But we enjoy the favor of God because we are the children of God in Jesus Christ. God, who is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, has become our God and Father. And so the apostle could write to the saints of Ephesus and wherever else this letter is read, including right here and right now, and say, Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ the highest honor of all, the greatest gift of God's grace to us, to you, is that we become children of God. And as a result, we shall spend our eternity in his presence with perfect unhindered communion. And this great gift of grace from God is wholly undeserved, but it leads us to peace, it leads us to sonship, and ultimately it leads us to eternal glory. It doesn't get any better than that. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your love to us as your children. And we pray, Lord, even now, that you would be reminding us of our own stories, of our own conversions, that we would rejoice yet again because you have shown us a grace and by your grace and in Christ we have peace with you. We are thankful, God, that it was by your will that we became your children. We are thankful to be called saints and we pray that you help us day by day to continue to live as those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, we rejoice as your people this morning, that you are ours, that we are yours, and we have what we have because of who Christ is and what he accomplished for us. And so we pray, Father, that we would walk faithfully and joyfully, and that you would be at work in each and every one of our hearts, conforming us all the more into the image of Christ, And for those who are not in Christ, that you would be at work in their hearts as well. That as they've heard the gospel, as they've heard the call to repent and believe, that you would bring them to that very place on this very day. To the end of themselves, that they might look up to Christ and live. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.